Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. This is What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch. Molly? Hey. Hey. (laughs) What are you doing here? Well, I thought I'd introduce the episode with you. Okay. That's What on Earth producer Molly Siegel. She's joining me now. Um, Maybe the reason you've decided to come in here is because you've been working away on stories about how different countries are planning a future that's sort of beyond fossil fuels and what Canada can learn from that. Yeah, but let's hear something else first. Sometimes football is more than just a game, and it is an extra special occasion at the Veltins Arena this evening. FC Schalke So in case you haven't caught on, it's a soccer match. Yeah, I figured that out. Thanks, Molly. <laughs> but listen carefully. And they are commemorating the closing of the coal mine industry at the same time. And there are around 2,000 miners in attendance at the stadium So it's not just any soccer match, as you can hear. We're listening to a video posted to YouTube by the Bundesliga Football League. This was December 20th, 2018, the day before the last hard coal mine closed in Germany's Ruhr Valley. It's going to be an emotional game, and obviously the Ruhrgebiet, Schalke, Dortmund, they they have a lot of miners in the families. So picture this. The stands are packed, and basically everyone has a flag in their hands. And on each flag, there's an image of a mining pick. And you can kind of imagine if this was in Canada, it would be like an NHL game, maybe the Edmonton Oilers or something, right? Right, the Oilers perhaps paying tribute to oil workers who were suddenly not going to have their jobs anymore because, say, the the oil sands closed down, something like that. Yeah, that that would be the like imagined equivalent in my mind. And sorry to divert us here, but I couldn't wait to share this with you because when I heard it, I was so surprised because what it said to me was that coal was such a part of the identity of this region, not just, you know, the jobs that people had. And so to hear this this soccer match celebrating and, and saying goodbye and honoring that change, it just really resonated. I can understand why, because it all does really tie into everything that we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, today we're dedicating the show to how workers and communities are dealing with this kind of change. As global oil demand is in steep decline, there's going to be a lot of volatility in this sector. There will be a crash out for these communities. And I've been looking at places around the world that are dealing with this future head on, like Denmark. In Denmark... There has been like this consensus that we are moving onwards. We see this as a progression or a a natural development. So today, I'm going to share some examples, stories about people making big decisions about the phase-out of fossil fuel production, not just for the planet, but for jobs. Jobs, right. And we know that that particular topic here in Canada, conversations around that topic are pretty fraught. Yeah, and some people want to make the switch, but it's not easy. You know, our system is, is based around um, around money, unfortunately. So it really limits the ability and my drive to seek out those jobs. Chris is one of thousands of workers in this country who will go through this challenge. And we need to bring them together to feel they can contribute in a way without creating divisions. 
So today, thanks to you, Molly, we'll travel around the world and then back to Canada for lessons about supporting workers and communities in the transition away from fossil fuels. Let's go. And we'll kick things off back in that soccer stadium in Germany's Ruhr Valley, where mining was a permanent fixture, even down to the decor. The entire um, changing rooms and everything is actually styled as if you were going down into the mines so that, you know, if these football or soccer players came out, come out to the field, they go up as if they are coming out of mines. This is Petra Dolata, an associate professor of energy history at the University of Calgary. Okay, so I grew up in a region that's called um, the Ruhrgebiet, which is in West Germany. It's about an hour north of Cologne. And it has been defined by coal and steel uh, since the early 20th century. The story behind that 2018 farewell to coal soccer match starts before global warming was center stage. You need to go back in the 1950s. So the first crisis really ensues around 1957-1958. During the Second World War, Germany wasn't investing in its mining industry, Petra says, and some coal mines were even destroyed by bombs. So when the war ended, after a few cold winters hit, Germany didn't have enough coal to keep everyone warm. That prompted the government to sign trade agreements to bring coal in from other countries, But by the late 1950s, things had rebounded, and there was no longer a shortage of coal, but a glut. Mounds of it piled up outside of mines. The German government realized it had to make big cuts to the industry. Those heaps of coal meant jobs disappearing. In 1959, we have the first big protest, and there were over 60,000 miners. Over the decades, protests would become a key ingredient in amplifying the voices of workers asking for a secure future. But this time around, Petra says, from the late 1950s until the mid-60s, 165,000 people were laid off. It was around this time that her father was just getting his start in the industry. This is Werner Delata on a video call with Petra. Yeah. Yeah. Who agreed to help interpret for us? So, yeah, good. Also, my name is Elisabeth Dolata. Elisabeth, Petra's mother. Both are long retired now. Elisabeth, a teacher, and Werner, an accountant within the coal company. His father had worked in the coal mines, and Werner started his training for an office job with the mine when he was just 17. I have worked uh, since uh, 1967 there. So Werner was just starting out after the layoffs, and things were about to change for workers like him. His own career tells a bit of the story of Germany's transition off coal. It was clear more mines would close, but it was also clear that people were angry about how things had been handled. So unions, industry, and government... They sat together and uh, talked about how can you make this phase-out, this closing of mines more socially acceptable. And what they came up with was the founding of a semi-public company called the Ruhrkohle AG, which was founded in 1969. And they covered around 80% of all coal mines in Germany. This semi-public company was a way to make sure coal workers weren't all hooped when their local mine closed. 
When that happened in their hometown, workers could catch a company bus to a nearby town. And that's what Werner did. He already had an early retirement date as part of the phase-out. He knew he would start getting less work at 58, and by 60, he would stop altogether. It was based on what was called the German Coal Adjustment Act. And in this Adjustment Act, there really were already various regulations included that would kind of uh, provide a controlled face-out, a face-out that allowed people to either um, switch their workplaces within this big company or to be supported to find jobs elsewhere. This whole idea of adjusting meant a controlled preparation for a diminishing workforce. Control while the industry was shrinking. Essentially, a way to prevent mass layoffs like they'd seen before. But the phase-out would be a long one. And in the meantime, the government would both subsidize the price of coal and support workers. To do this, the government went to communities to find out what they wanted. And Petra says that this was really important in making sure the transition was accepted. The idea was to find ways for people to stay in their communities. So the German government invested in new industries, things like car manufacturing, textile factories, and even universities, including Petra's own alma mater. And that was, of course, uh, forward-looking and trying to, to figure out what other jobs would be available beyond industrial jobs. This transition slowed down a bit in the 1970s and 1980s with the global oil crisis. Suddenly, it was important to have some energy sources at home. But by the 1990s, things again started to change. The German government had been subsidizing the coal industry at this point for decades. In 1997, the German government at the time announced that it would no longer be willing to subsidize coal the way it did before. And that really was a major turning point. But workers did not like this at all. So they took to the streets. There was very famously a huge demonstration where 220,000 people were forming a human chain that was 100 kilometers long. There were massive protests everywhere. The government said, OK, we hear you. We need to stop propping up this industry. But we can't just abandon you without help. Now they agreed to a last coal compromise. This was about creating a socially acceptable coal phase-out that was devoid of social hardship. It included paying for retraining for some miners, sometimes in entirely different fields, like this example from Petra's dad. Uh, Peter, noch was. Yeah. Ich bin ja hier in dem uh, Fitnessstudio uh, mm -hmm. und da ist auch jemand als Physiotherapeut. So he, for example, my dad goes to a fitness studio and there's a physiotherapist and he actually worked for the coal mine and he was one of those people and they approached them and, you know, asked them, so, you know, can you think of other jobs? And so his, he retrained. From coal miner to physiotherapist running a fitness studio, for example. There were also more retirements, including Werner, who got a bit of a surprise of his own. Ich bin nicht sehr jung in Rente gegangen, sondern erst mit 60 Jahren. Nein, es, es war so. Also. Okay. It was now clear, so from 1997 on, that my dad would start phase-out at age 53. When I asked how he felt about this earlier phase-out, which did mean some financial loss, he smiles, laughs, and pumps his fists in the air. 
so as you saw of course my dad <laughs> was very happy <laughs> that uh, he no longer would have to work yeah this is yeah so uh, this is yeah geschenktes leben um so uh, my dad calls it a bit uh, kind of um geschenktes leben so it's like gifted life gifted life for some workers but not for all within the actual industry few people really lost their jobs there are many that are very strongly connected to the industry who did but they weren't as organized they weren't as vocal they weren't really part they were more at the periphery imagine you are working in a shop in a coal town the local mine shuts down and the employees that worked there are now commuting out of town to another mine if the store you were working at then had to close because there were fewer shoppers, your job was just gone. And there was no other job lined up, no early retirement, and no paid retraining program. And Petra says, in this case, most of these workers were women. So wherever an energy transition is happening, to get a complete picture of the impact, she says you have to cast a wider net than just the coal mine or an oil field. It's really important for us to understand that there will be many people who will be lamenting the closing of mines. A lot of them don't even work directly in there. And that's, for me, the interesting parallel, right, when we even talk about Alberta, where um, it's many more people than those who are just directly employed by oil and gas who kind of fear or at least have some trepidations about what would happen to a region that is so defined and identifies with one energy carrier. While we can learn from Germany's approach to energy transition, Petra cautions it won't look the same in Canada. How can you replicate something that took so long, but also took a lot of money and also a lot of intervention by government? And this is, I think, where the comparison makes you wonder because Germany is a country where people accept that the government will step in. People actually demand that a government should be providing these kind of measures that help so that there is not economic hardship. Now, what I understand so far from living in Alberta almost uh, nine years now is there's a very different understanding of what a government should do. There is another key difference, disagreement, even down to the language. Divisive, polarizing language. Alberta Premier Danielle Smith. When I hear the words just transition, it signals eliminating jobs. And for Alberta, that is a non-starter. This has become almost a moral battle. And you pick your sides. Either, you know, you believe that we need to stop producing oil and gas or you don't. That's a very different battle than saying we need to make sure that people keep their jobs. In March, the federal government released its Sustainable Jobs Action Plan. If that means changing the language, then be it. But we need to address the kind of things that people are really, really worried about. And so maybe start first. And that's something that they did in West Germany. What are your worries? What are you most afraid of? What do you think needs to be addressed first? When we peer into history, we may not find exact parallels. Still, it might offer us some insight all the same. Like the role that unions played in negotiating with government and industry. Petra's mother, Elisabeth, would also add. Yeah, das Wichtigste ist also wirklich dabei, die Menschen wollen genau informiert werden. 
There needs to be absolute transparency and constant communication about what is actually going to happen. A, they need to know what exactly happens and what are my options to keep earning money. Before we wrap up our video call, Werner has one more thing he wants to add about his early retirement that brings us back to soccer. And the one thing my dad loved is finally being able to drive there in the morning and watch his team do the training session. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It was very important for me. As he says, gifted life to explore other interests. Well, that is some spirited music. I suppose it's some kind of soccer march, and I'm glad for Werner that he's getting a chance to pay more attention to his soccer slash football team. But Molly, I, I know the story of coal in Germany isn't over just yet. It's true, but a few years ago, Germany set some other big deadlines. It will stop mining for soft coal, which is used to make electricity, by 2038. And part of the country is actually going to wind that down even sooner, by the end of the decade. Meanwhile, though, they're still using natural gas and they're using oil. They do, but Germany also has an Energiewende. That's Germany's plan for an energy turnaround, which includes this final phase out of coal, as well as a ramp up of renewables. Just, just Molly, I gotta say, impressed with the German accent, the German <laughs> pronunciation. You. Very good. But but there are people who are saying that this is not moving quickly enough. I'm I'm just thinking about what I noticed the other week. There were protesters in Berlin who were gluing themselves to the streets, the asphalt, in the name of climate action. Well, I think these protests are a great segue to our next story, which also involves a little bit of climate activism. We are going to Denmark. So this is uh, what I'd call an entrenched estate. So my name is Angela Carter, and I am an energy transition specialist at the International Institute for Sustainable Development. Angela is also an associate professor at the University of Waterloo. She describes Denmark as having a lot of, quote, skin in the game with fossil fuels. Between 1972 and 2020, the country earned more than 109 billion Canadian dollars from oil and gas, which is a lot when you consider that it's a country of 5.8 million people. So in late 2020, when the Danish government banned future rounds of offshore fossil fuel exploration, Angela had some questions. What would motivate a major producing state to do that? And what could we learn from that? So she packed up her bags and set off to get some answers. So that's what brought me to Denmark. There's one place in particular she wanted to take a closer look at. So uh, there's a particular community, Eshbjerg. I don't think I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it's on the western coast of the country. Eshbjerg? Yeah, Eshbjerg. Eshbjerg. Oh, that was very good. This is Jesper Bank helping me with my Danish pronunciation. I'm the chief commercial officer at Port Eshbjerg a larger Danish port uh, on the west coast of Denmark towards the North Sea. The port has been a hub for offshore fossil fuel extraction since the 1970s. Before the oil boom, it was a fishing port, and today it's also bustling with wind energy. There has been like this consensus that we are moving onwards, and we do not see this transition as a, a choice between one type of energy or another type of energy. 
we see this as a progression or a, a natural development. For him, this is just how things are. Natural, as he says. Almost unremarkable. But when Angela arrived, she found the scale of it all very remarkable. When you're walking around the port, there are these enormous turbines. The blades on these wind turbines are over 100 meters long. It's hard to imagine even the scale of them. And they're everywhere. <laughs> they're just, it's a port just filled with these huge turbines and blades. Lots of activity of, you know, moving moving these things about. You can imagine they're very difficult to move. But there's an excitement there. And it was amazing for me anyways to see what used to be an old fishing auction hall, which has now been converted into a service center for offshore wind turbines. Angela is from Newfoundland. And Denmark reminds her of the dangers of a sudden end to an industry, like Newfoundland's cod fishery. And with that, fishermen stormed the doors of John Crosby's news conference. It makes her that much more curious to really understand what's happening in Denmark. I think of it as a recipe. What ingredients are needed to make this cake of equitable transition? I could be social scientific about it, and I could talk about factors and conditions, but I really think about it as, like, cake making, you know? If Denmark's equitable transition off of fossil fuels is a cake, there's a key ingredient in the batter. First thing is there was massive public engagement. Angela's recipe starts with the public making itself heard. In this case, loud and clear, leading up to Denmark's last general election. Jens Matthias Clausen was listening pretty closely to what people had to say. And I'm the EU director at the think tank Concito, based in Copenhagen. He says in the summer of 2018, record-breaking heat and drought brought the reality of climate change home to people in Denmark. Leading up to the 2019 election, young people protested in the street. People wanted the government to do something about it. And this movement pushed climate change to the center of the political agenda. Denmark elected Meta Fredriksson of the Social Democratic Party. Jens landed in the middle of it all. He got a job with the new government in its Ministry of Climate and Energy. And oil and gas were in the hot seat. Jens says the idea of killing future licenses for oil and gas exploration in the North Sea had to be revisited somehow in light of the elections and in light of the public demands for climate action. So the deadline for granting new licenses kept getting bumped. But in the end, that was actually what led to a bit of a fait accompli. Because Total, the French fossil fuel giant, in the end decided to withdraw the application from the licensing round because of the uncertainty. With Total now backing out, it was easier for all the parties to agree. And it was a game-changing deal. A ban on new offshore oil and gas exploration and a phase-out of fossil fuel extraction by 2050. Jens says that wasn't a trivial decision. Fossil fuels were big moneymakers for the country. I think that makes it, gives it more weight. It shows that we have entered a stage now where things that we have previously taken for granted like the continued extraction of fossil fuels, they have to be revisited in light of the massive crisis that we are facing. And even though it was not necessarily a very pretty process in in Denmark, we did find ourselves with a historical deal. When the public gets together and speaks out for climate action, Angela Carter says it's easier for politicians to get on board. So that's one of the, the, the ingredients that goes into this cake. 
The other piece is the way in which then government fostered that transition. In this case, the ingredient in the cake mix was giving money away to help build wind farms. The government accepted bids that required the least amount of government funding. And by about 2019, Jesper Bank, with the port of Esbjerg, says the first proposals came through that actually didn't need financial aid at all. This was a sign that wind power could stand on its own. That was a good way to build up supply chains. Then we started investing in vessels. The port started investing in more direct infrastructure for offshore wind. Now the industry is booming. Every year, Denmark makes billions of dollars from exporting wind turbines and related technology. Even the Danish energy company, Orsted, founded as an oil and gas company, divested from fossil fuels by 2017. It's now a wind energy company. In a way, Denmark made the decision to choose wind as a winner. Angela Carter. So big investment by the state. So that's kind of a top-down movement there. But there's also a bottom-up movement, which is equally important. And this is inclusive dialogue across the diversity of society. To continue with Angela's cake analogy here, she says communication is another key ingredient of an equitable transition. Communication between government and communities, or companies and unions. My name is Jacob Luger, and I'm 54 years old, and I'm a chairman from the labor union 3F in Denmark. Growing up in Esbjerg, Jacob's future looked pretty clear from a young age. There were two things you can do as a boy. Either you could go out to be a shipper, a fisherman, or you can get into the oil and gas business. I chose the oil and gas. Jacob worked in the oil and gas industry for years. Now he's a union leader representing workers at the port, called dockers. Energy workers, skilled for jobs at the port supporting both fossil fuels and wind. Denmark says it will keep growing its offshore wind industry. And Jacob says the people he represents will be ready to work on those turbines. When the wind might come, our colleagues are actually ready to do the job because in the spare time, they go to school. And of course, when they go to school, they get a decent salary. And that's also part of my job to make sure that they get a fairly amount when they go to school so they not get any losses. That decent salary they get is part of a training program called the Offshore Academy. Jacob says that that's the result of good relationships between the port, which is owned by the municipality, the United Federation of Workers in Denmark, and the companies themselves. Jacob says the industry is happy to chip in. We get a lot of money into the funds so we can recruit more people so they can get into the green transition because we have, do not have so many people to do the work. At the moment, people aren't employed in either fossil fuels or wind. In many cases, it's really a mix of both. In Denmark, they didn't think of themselves as oil and gas workers per se. They, they consider themselves to be energy workers. If we can unlock this in the Canadian context, we can't help but win. The retraining programs, the onshore and offshore wind farms, the bustling port of wind turbine exports... All of these things have gotten the attention of people around the world. Consulting his calendar on the day we talk, Jesper says. Last week we had uh, the Baltic Port Association together with the Polish Port Association. Tomorrow morning at 8 we have the uh, Australian Climate Minister. And later tomorrow at 12 we have 60 people coming up from Netherlands. Canada is also interested. 
Denmark has many wind-curious visitors, including the Nova Scotia government, which says its goal is to build an offshore wind farm by 2030 to create green hydrogen. But Jesper says Canada has a long way to go. No offense, you are at an early stage in, in offshore wind, right? And investigating. And while Nova Scotia eyes Denmark's burgeoning offshore wind industry, Angela Carter is thinking about one more ingredient in her cake. Alongside all of this is also aligning climate policy and energy policy. It's one thing to have renewables, but without a plan to wind down fossil fuel extraction, Angela says there's a disconnect with Canada's net zero climate pledges. Oil and gas remains the biggest greenhouse gas polluter in Canada, making up more than a quarter of emissions in 2021. The industry says it's committed to cutting emissions. Unlike Denmark, Canada pumps public money into the fossil fuel sector. We're creating a market distortion. So basically, we're making it really profitable and uh, you know, promising for these oil and gas firms to continue operating as they always have. Angela thinks following Denmark's lead would create a better playing field for renewables in Canada. But her journey also opened her eyes to more profound possibilities, transforming a way of life for so many people that could be positive for the workers, their communities, and for Canada as a whole. I think it's it's showing us what the future can be. All right, forgive me for saying this, but there is a lot to chew on with oh. her cake analogy. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but Canada is different from Denmark. For one thing, we are a lot bigger. It's true. And it even came up in my interviews. Someone even said that Denmark's small size allows them to trust each other more and even trust their government more. But I think there's a lot more for us to talk about than Denmark. And I have a bit of a grab bag of energy transition inspiration for us. Just in case any of us were lacking. Okay, go ahead. I'm listening. (laughs) So Angela Carter says that there are things happening here in North America. Not just Denmark. It's Illinois. It's Colorado. Other states that are now seeing a sharp uptick in renewable energy jobs and public revenues and community revenues, they're tasting the economic benefits and the community development benefits of transition, and suddenly then it's unstoppable. She's referring to the phase-out of coal power generation that's ongoing in Colorado and Illinois. Both have transition plans for workers so that they're not left in the lurch. That's also been happening here in Canada, too. I mean, that includes Alberta. Yeah, exactly. And another thing happening in the U.S. that's pushing things along is President Joe Biden's groundbreaking climate investment. This is exactly what we're seeing unfolding right now in the United States, thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act. As soon as government makes the incentives make sense for a clean energy transition, it is just a a job bonanza. In Canada, the federal government is putting money into going green, including more than $20 billion in the last federal budget towards the green economy. But it's not quite on the same scale as the U.S. In Canada, there is something else, though, that excites Angela. Quebec. Okay, I remember. I think I know why. I remember Quebec Premier François Legault banned the exploration, production, and public financing of oil and gas in legislation last year. And even before that, Quebec signed on to the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance alongside Denmark. But, you know, Quebec isn't in the same position as Alberta. It doesn't have huge fossil fuel reserves. 
No, it doesn't. And if you look at the province's GDP, resource industries account for a very small amount. But Quebec's leadership on climate policy at home and on the global stage has been informed by over a decade-long campaign by civil society organizations to push for aggressive climate action and to push back against fossil fuel development. So that pushback, as I recall, Angela Carter was saying, that's the first ingredient in the cake of equitable energy transition. And um, she's saying that these things happen because of that commitment in Quebec, because of that pushback, because of that protest. Yeah. And she gave me two examples. One was the pushback against fracking and oil drilling on Anticosti Island. That exploration was stopped. Or another example, the resistance to an LNG project in Saguenay, which was rejected last year. Okay, so just to bring this all back to Beyond Oil and Gas, I remember Costa Rica also signed on to the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance. But so far, that country has never extracted oil and gas. So is there anything to learn from Costa Rica? Yeah, I mean, I I actually think it's interesting because it's not that they don't have those reserves. They just made a decision decades ago to use green energy. And now nearly all of the country's power is from hydroelectricity and geothermal. Here's Costa Rica's former president, Carlos Alvarado Quesada, speaking on Sunday Magazine in February. And if a country like Costa Rica, a mid-income country in the middle of Americas, can do that, it demonstrates that it is actually possible. If we do not diversify our economies, there won't be any just transition. That, though, is the former president. The current president is voicing the possibility of future oil and gas exploration. Yes, but for now, nothing has changed. There is another interesting example, and that's Colombia. While there's nothing in law, President Gustavo Petro has publicly stated that he wants to put an end to oil and gas and make the switch to renewable energy. Okay, well, that is different than committing to reaching net zero. Yes, it is different. It's an important distinction because while there are countries who've made pledges to the United Nations saying, yes, we're going to cut emissions, we're going to go net zero, there's far fewer countries that are talking directly about winding down or ending the fossil fuel sector. But fossil fuels account for the majority of global greenhouse gas emissions. Andres Gomez with Friends of the Earth Colombia says the country only has about 0.1 percent of the world's oil and gas reserves. But those reserves account for 60 percent of the country's exports. Well, there you get an idea of what a big part of the, of the economy that is then. So, so what does Colombia's path forward look like? It's not clear, but he says the union that represents oil and gas workers is all for something new. They have been with us in the fight against fracking, for instance. And they are, there are like a tradition of the union workers to be like ahead of discussions. And in this case, they are also working for a transition away, a planned transition. So, Laura, I know this is a lot to digest. Oh, my goodness. It's happening to her, too. (laughs) The equitable transition (laughs) cake. Um, But one more example here. New Zealand, in 2018, they put an end to new licenses for offshore oil and gas exploration. And that really contrasts to Canada, which has committed to net zero, but not to an end of fossil fuel production. Right. And again, we're talking about the the importance of that distinction, because I remember it came up in November at the UN Climate Talks COP27 in Egypt. There was a discussion about adding words to the final agreement, words that were in effect a phase out of fossil fuels, and Canada did not agree to that. 
yeah, we did not agree to that, but it doesn't mean that things aren't already in motion here, both in terms of the renewable projects that we're seeing across the country, but also changes in the oil and gas industry. So Statistics Canada has been tracking this, and from 2012 to 2022, employment in the oil and gas sector dropped by about 25%. I didn't realize the number was that high, 25%. Meanwhile, we're seeing the federal government's so-called Sustainable Jobs Action Plan, but we're still waiting on legislation. But Molly, thanks so much for giving us such a clear snapshot of everything that's going on around the world. Thank you, Laura. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, Plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. So now let's bring things back to Canada. Senator Hassan Youssef is a former president of the Canadian Labour Congress. He was appointed as a senator by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. He joins us from Ottawa. Melody Lepine is the Director of Government and Industry Relations with the Miccosoo Cree First Nation. We've reached her in Fort McMurray. Chris is on the line with us from where he lives about an hour outside of St. John's, Newfoundland. He works for a company that does inspections for industry. Big clients include mines, but also oil and gas sites. And CBC has agreed not to use his last name to protect his job security. Hello to all of you. Good afternoon. Chris, let's start with you. You live in Newfoundland, but your work takes you across the country, including to oil and gas sites. I wonder if you ever reflect on on the fact that you're working in an industry that, that is contributing to emissions and climate change and global warming? Oh, absolutely, constantly. It's a factor that makes it very difficult to go to work in the first place, uh, is to know that the work that I'm doing is contributing to uh, such vast environmental destruction. And unfortunately, uh, this system that we live in does really limit the amount of opportunities people have to make a livelihood. You're either working directly in oil and gas or you're, you're benefiting from it in some way downstream. But I definitely struggle with the fact that I am directly contributing to. Yeah, you, you've just had a child. Congratulations. But I'm wondering what, kind, what kind of toll that takes on you. Uh, a vast one. I don't see a very bright future for my child. Yeah, I don't see necessarily a bright future even in my life based on the trajectory that we're currently on is seems like business as usual there's all these talks of these of these just transitions and transitions from uh, getting away from a carbon-based economy but uh, from what i understand it doesn't seem like it's actually happening or happening at the speed that it needs to happen at to protect the planet and the ecological resources on it and so yes it does weigh quite heavily on me for sure Melody Lepine, you live in Fort McMurray. You've also worked in the oil and gas sector. What does the industry mean to you and to your community? Uh, Yeah, I'm one of the few people, I think, that's born and raised here in Fort McMurray. Um, Yeah, I remember uh, my high school days um, when you're getting close to graduation and, you know, looking to your future. A strong presence um, with recruitment from the local oil companies. Um, Once you start to prepare for graduation, come work with us. 
And so, you know, during our high school years, we pretty much thought we were going to end up working for a big oil company um, in our region. And indeed, I did go to work um, for one of the major companies shortly after graduation. And that's where I got exposed to another side of uh, the activities at site. And that was the environmental and reclamation area. And so that's when I decided to not necessarily be part of the extraction of the oil, but uh, focus, you know, maybe in helping return things and doing some reclamation. So that's when I decided to go to university and, and study land reclamation and environmental sciences. I chose to work for my community and work with oil companies on things like pushing them for, for reclamation commitments and, and really overseeing the development um, in the region on behalf of my community. Yeah. How many other Indigenous women did you see around you when you were working in the oil sands? Not a lot. Not a lot of women in, in, in general. There's definitely not a lot of Indigenous women. So when I left working for the companies, there was a lot of more entry-level positions, um, a lot of positions in, in grounds, maintenance, and, and labor-type work. Not a lot of senior positions available for, for Indigenous people or specifically Indigenous women like myself. Um, and not a lot taking up environmental-related or engineering or science-related type of work and studies as well. But uh, it's growing. I am happy to say there are a few more taking interest. So that's great. All right, Senator Yusuf, when you hear Melody and Chris talk about their ties to fossil fuels and the ties fossil fuels have in their communities, what role do you think the federal government should play in supporting individuals and communities who are connected to the oil and gas sector? Well, I think the first thing we need to acknowledge is that uh, both workers who work in the industry and also the community has been a substantial part of the development of Canada and its history. And now that we're going to go through this period where we're going to try to slowly move away from fossil fuel as how we deal with, uh, you know, the challenges of heating our homes and provide for how we get from point A to point B, we need to recognize that the workers and the community has to be centered you're going to have to sit down and listen very carefully to what people are saying because they do want to work, they want to contribute to the economy, and more importantly, of course, they want to continue to live in their community and not feel that they have to pack up and leave simply because they don't have the economic or or opportunity for jobs in there. So there's a lot of work that has to be done. It's going to take effort, it's going to take resources, and it could take a lot of political will with some form of leadership within the federal government taking some responsibility to make sure this does happen. Okay, in Denmark... We know there are energy workers who are employed both in the fossil fuel sector and in wind energy at the same time. Chris, what opportunities do you think are out there for you along those lines? Uh, there's definitely opportunities, but they seem to be limited and uh, definitely don't pay as much as the oil and gas or other, other mining and extracting uh, industries do. Uh, I have had offers to go work in wind farms. There just wasn't financially... Uh, beneficial to me to do it you know our system is, is based around money unfortunately so it really limits my uh, you know the ability and my drive to seek out those jobs uh, that may change but it seems as you know as far as i understand that the the margins of profit from wind is a lot different or a lot lower than the, it is from gas the, the way i see it is one system is you know a lot more entrenched in our economic system and is a lot more able to influence it and therefore it will a lot more able to attract workers and better workers to their industry. Do you have an idea of what the solution could be to that? Uh, 
I, I don't think it's a very simple one. I think the way I see it is that the system that we're operating within is based upon worker exploitation and exploitation of the Earth's resources and land. And unless we change that economic model, I don't see how we can fix these problems. We're just going to change how we're powering the problem. Melody, I'm wondering what you think of that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we always found that, you know, putting all of your your eggs in, in, in the one basket in this region just to be what has become the, you know, the economic driver for Canada, it's, we don't have a lot of other opportunities except oil sands. And so this transition is, is, is welcomed, I would say, but we, what is the plan so that our communities are not left behind? Um, we've been really almost forced to have to evolve and accept the development in our region for the past 30 years and started to build businesses, you know, to allow for um, direct participation, you know, to, to also keep our local Indigenous communities vibrant and with our economics. So we've been really focused on doing that for a number of years. And so transitioning is going to take some significant resources and funding for infrastructure in our communities to help support the training and development. And so we're quite fearful that we're going to get left behind, often like we are left behind right now in the oil sands. I think a, a big part of our worry is is that we need to make sure we have the support of the government to ensure that we are we're catching up and we will catch up indeed in the near future to ensure that we are um, benefiting um, because it's it's the right stewardship thing to do obviously trying to address the climate crisis but at the same time we're going to need a lot of, of support I would say in terms of infrastructure in terms of what is this economic. Uh, reconciliation look like with this new transition plan. So, Senator, I think you can hear from from both Melody and Chris that this concern that that maybe there isn't enough um, yet uh, signals of commitment from from government to, to actually help people make a transition when that's what it is all about. You yourself spoke about political will. Um, the government is talking about helping oil and gas workers through. They used to call it just transition legislation. Now it's changed to sustainable jobs. Aside from the political will, it sounds like there needs to be cash. (laughs) What are you hoping to see in the legislation? Well, I hope to see many things in the legislation, but uh, you're absolutely right. It will take a lot of resources to make sure this happens. And more importantly, of course, it's going to take a long-term effort uh, to achieve the objective in in ensuring that both communities don't get lost in the process and including the workers and their families because they are the center and the heart of all of this. There's a lot of, of course, uh, trepidation, worry, stress from families about what is likely to happen. But I think we can start from the perspective that people have a lot of skills to begin with and more importantly, how can you utilize those skills and help create good paying jobs that's going to help them and their families remain in their community. And that's not an easy thing. It's going to take a lot of efforts. If you lose one industry, of course, what replaces that? In Leduc County, which is in Alberta, they've gone through phasing out coal, and um, now they've created opportunities for new companies to come there to replace the jobs they have lost. But what will be the big challenge? Are those jobs going to pay an equal amount of salary as workers were making working in in the coal industry? And similarly, as we're going to go through the oil and gas industry, can we create jobs that have an equal? Probably not likely in some cases, but given the skills the workers have, many of them, of course, can adapt to other industry to, of course, to earn a similar standard of living. But some, in some cases, they may be able to remain in the community. In other cases, they might have to leave the community. So it's a combination of things the federal government is going to have to do to ensure 
that the workers don't bear the burden of this, given this is a public policy decision by our government. Because if we don't do this in a proper way, there's going to build a lot of resentment and people are going to say, listen, I can't support this because ultimately you're asking me to make the sacrifices. The people who have made the profits from this industry are not sacrificing anything. The industry has made a lot of money from this sector. It's only fair that they contribute an equal amount, of course, for workers who are likely to see their living or standard of living change as a result of the job opportunities diminish as we go forward. Senator, I wonder if you could do me a favor. I wonder if you could talk to Chris directly because he's he sounds pretty pessimistic. Could you tell Chris where you see hope for someone in his position? Well, I, I would start from the perspective that uh, Chris is in industry because, you know, he was attracted to the salary and the opportunity provided for him and his family. But at the same time, he has an incredible amount of skills. This Chris need to gain new skills. The federal government should play a substantial role in helping identify how he gets that long before his job become redundant or disappeared. Chris may want to make a decision. That means he doesn't stay in this industry. He want to try something completely new. So if we've got two or three years for him to do so, why don't you provide him with the training and the support he needs to upgrade those skills so he can be ready. Chris is one of thousands of workers in this country who will go through this challenge. And ultimately, we need to bring them together to feel they can contribute in a way without creating divisions. Chris, what do you think of what the senator had to say? Uh, I definitely, I I understand what what he's saying about, you know, transitioning and getting workers trained up and that there will be, you know, maybe gaps in between when the jobs aren't quite the same or don't compensate quite the same. But I, I guess what my concern is that we're not addressing the the core issue of what the problem is and that isn't necessarily just the carbon that we're putting out it's it's you know habitat destruction biodiversity reduction so my my pessimism is not just solely on whether or not i'll be getting a wage but if we stop climate change if we stop carbon today but we didn't change our practices of continual growth we're still going to strip mine the earth bare and you know, there won't be anywhere for plants and animals to live, and that means us. Okay. All right. Um, Chris, I, I, I'm not sure your pessimism has been improved at all through the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Unfortunately, no. I mean, I, 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 mean, I, do, I do have hope, for sure. I, I, I think we need to have hope. Once we've given up the hope, it's, there's, there's not much point anymore. But uh, it's more so I'm definitely pessimistic from, you know, what you see the world government's doing, and our government, it just seems to me to be... Uh, yeah, too little and, and, and definitely too late. You know, some plan is better than no plan, but I just, my, again, my concern is that it, it's, it's, it's a distraction. It's a, uh, it's a plan to appease, but not to actually solve the problem. Wow, a you- plan to appease. <laughs> wow, Senator, what do you think of that? Well, I, you know, I, I do want to say, Chris, is if you were to think back, um, not so long ago, government didn't even want to talk about just transition, much less what they were going to do mm-hmm. with workers. And I think... It's the effort of workers and their unions fighting and pushing that we need to do better and more importantly, we can achieve. But like you, I am optimistic and pessimistic at the same time. I have a 14-year-old daughter and I struggle some days to give her clear answers as to Mm -hmm. what her future is going to look like. So I recognize, you know, it's going to take effort. It's going to take, of course, some ongoing tension between workers and community and others to say we got to do better. I mean, the fact that you addressed the whole question about what's happening, of course, to the natural environment, we're destroying habitat and, and, and wildlife that we may not see again in our lifetime. 
What does that say about us as a, as a species who have evolved to the point that should know better? But at the same time, I'm hopeful that, you know, all of us pulling and pushing and fighting and, of course, demanding that we could do better will lead our leadership to say we can do better. Other countries are f trying to figure this out equally as we are. And I know mm -hmm. that nobody's come up with the right answer, but I know we can do better in Canada. And I'm hoping my daughter, as young as she is, will have a better future than her father. But I'm very optimistic and pessimistic at the same time. Yeah, I hear you there. Might have to call you in uh, 14 years for some advice. <laughs> <laughs> well, my friend, anytime. There you go. We, we have a lot to share. <laughs> All right. I, I want to uh, bring Melody Lapine back in to wrap up our conversation now. Um, Melody, Canada has committed to being net zero by 2050. And let's say we arrived at that goal. What conversations do you hope we'll be having then? Yeah, I mean, um, I think Chris is raising some important parts. Like it's it's more than just this just transition. You know, Canada's got some other pretty important targets, right? Their targets to biodiversity as well. Increasing Indigenous protected areas, as an example. I think at the same time, we need to look at our economy under a different lens. And, and that's the point that Chris is raising. It's like we just piecemeal everything, whether or not it's biodiversity or climate change. Um, we, ne we need a, a, a sustainable future starting now. Um, and I have to say, you know, uh, many Indigenous people have been saying this for a very long time. The way we um, extract resources is not done in a sustainable way. We need to rethink the way our future tomorrow starts with our, any type of economic growth. We need to look at everything from how we manage fresh water to how we manage not only climate change impacts, but impacts to the natural environment and these really fragile ecosystems that are falling apart today that we need to rely on for any type of sustainable future. So just I think we need to take a more holistic approach to what this transition looks like uh, versus just looking at it only from the lens of climate change. Such a big topic, and I'm sure we could have talked for longer, but I want to thank all three of you, um, Melody Lepine, Senator Youssef, and of course, Chris. Thank you all so much for your time. Thank you kindly thank for you. having thank us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, before we go, Molly Siegel's back with me in studio to wrap up this journey, and it has been full of fascinating lessons. And lest we forget, a cake recipe. <laughs> uh, I'm kind of hungry, you know. Um, by the way, we did ask the federal government when we can expect their so-called sustainable jobs legislation. And for their response to some of what you heard today, they did not respond by our deadline. Okay, but we do want to hear from you, our listeners, especially if you work in oil, gas or coal, or if you live in a community that's centered around fossil fuels. Tell us what you want to see. Email us at earth at cbc.ca. The whole What on Earth team includes associate producers Danielle Piper and Zoe Yunker, producers Rachel Sanders, and of course, Molly Siegel. Matthias Wilson is our engineer. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. Special thanks this week to Jake Costello. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.